And we, you know, one of the most interesting fields of study, I think, is the, the science of belief. And where is God in the brain? You know, it's, it's kind of what I'm mm -hmm. often asked yeah. in, in Q&A sessions. Where is God in the brain? And what we know is that the, the prefrontal cortex, you know, that really, really front part, that part of the brain in particular seeks to understand sort of where we go, how we relate, and, and, and how we specifically relate to deep mystical and spiritual concepts. Mayim Bialik is a woman of many talents and many passions. Most of us know her from her roles on TV. She had her own sitcom as a child, Blossom. And I remember that one so well because, first of all, Blossom was the same age as I was then, so that was already exciting. And then that name, Mayim Bialik, even little me could tell that that was a very Hebrew, very jewy sounding name. So I thought, oh, one of us is on TV. And I don't think I quite realized when I was 14 how many of us were on TV. But anyway, her biggest sitcom role was yet to come. And most people probably know her best for playing Amy Farrah Fowler on The Big Bang Theory. And now she has another show called Call Me Cat, which is three seasons in. And of course, Mayim is also now one of the hosts of Jeopardy, which should be especially exciting for my nerdy audience. But Mayim isn't only an actor. She's an author, having written one book on attachment parenting and one vegan cookbook. And speaking of veganism, she's an activist as well, and she helped found an organization called Shamayim Ba'aretz that advocates for the ethical treatment of animals. I'll add that she's a great vegan chef, to boot. <laughs> she's a podcaster, like me, and you should check out Mayim Bialik's Breakdown, a podcast on mental health. And she's now a director as well, and her first film, as They Made Us, came out last year. But I know her best as just one of my favorite Jews on the planet. I met her because she was a member at Ikar when I got a job as a rabbi there, and we became fast friends because alongside all her other interests, she's also a great lover of Torah. And not in a passing fancy kind of way. Mayim is passionate and thoughtful about Torah and Judaism and Jewish ritual and tradition and religion and just all of my favorite things. So on that merit alone, she would have been great to have on the podcast to talk some Torah with me. But in fact, I reached out to her in particular because of yet another one of her areas of expertise, because I haven't mentioned it yet, but oh yeah, Mayim also somehow along the way managed to get a PhD in neuroscience, the study of the brain. And that's where I really wanted her help and her perspective. Because I wanted to talk to someone who really understood the science of the brain and also knew our tradition well, so that I could ask some questions about the role of the brain in that tradition. Because the workings of the brain don't get discussed that much in the Torah. As you'll soon hear us discuss, the word for brain isn't even in the Torah. But a lot of what is in the Torah presumes a functioning brain and even asks us to use it in certain specific ways. In particular, the brain is directly implicated by the whole realm that we call belief or faith. 
Judaism, like many religions, asks us to believe in certain things. Actually, in Judaism's case, it doesn't just ask, it commands. We're commanded to believe in God, to believe there is only one God, and to believe that that God is the one who delivered us from Egypt and then gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. So how are we supposed to force ourselves, to force our brains to believe in that stuff? Or you could ask a different question. What is going on in our brains when and if we do believe in that stuff? That's what I wanted to know. And I wanted to know what a scientist would say about all that. But again, I needed a scientist who knew enough about my religion to be able to ask my questions directly from the language of the Torah. And Mayim is just the perfect person for that. And she had answers. She had great answers, deep and sophisticated answers. She'd clearly thought about this stuff before because, as you'll hear, the tension between science and religion is one she spent a lot of time thinking about, and she's done an elegant job of harmonizing these two spheres for herself. But something funny began to happen as she started answering my questions, something I really didn't expect, which is that I found myself getting very uncomfortable, triggered, you might say, because Mayim's way of synthesizing the truths of religion and science, reasonable though it was, it started to push up against some of my own core beliefs. And I found myself getting a little defensive, starting to push back as I heard a scientific account of the religious experience. Because something in it felt incomplete to me and, and seemed to be robbing me of some kind of greater truth that I've always felt attached to and that I still wanted to hold on to. And so, I guess, by the end of our conversation, without meaning to, we had fallen into a sort of philosophical and spiritual debate. But what, after all, could be more Jewish than that? So, take a listen. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Mayim. <laughs> it's it's, Hello, uh, it's good David. to see you. It's good to see you. It is nice to see you and excited to talk to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to digging uh, with you a, a little bit into it and digging um, with your help. I'm often in the position of, of being the, the teacher or the guide in Torah conversations, but I want your help today because I want to think a, a little bit about how some of the the thinking that you've done in other realms that I that I take is also... Um, a big part of your intellectual life, um, mm -hmm. how the thinking that you've done in, in science in particular um, reflects back on this shared tradition that we have. Um, but uh, may, maybe, I, maybe I, 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 I should just start by asking you how you got into, yes, everybody knows you for your acting and for, your, for, that, for those parts of your public life, but then suddenly you did a PhD. I mean, you were a child actor, so you stopped that. Can, can you right. tell me how, how it is that you came to suddenly have a PhD in neuroscience? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how old I am because they don't want to think about how old they are. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm totally I was... in that. I being how old you are, I'm totally in that category, so yeah. Yeah, so when I was uh, 14 to 19 was when I was on a TV show called Blossom, which was on after the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, we were on for five years. And we premiered after the Cosby show. Like that's how old <laughs> I am. Wow. That that show was still on uh, when we premiered. But then we were, you know, kind of paired with uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air 
And so those were the years, you know, approximately 89 to 94. Um, I graduated high school in 93. And um, I then, you know, left the industry effectively for 12 years. I went to UCLA. I did my undergraduate um, degree there in neuroscience. Uh, at first, I was undeclared. I knew I wanted to study something science-y, but um, I studied neuroscience and I did a minor in Hebrew and Jewish studies. That was partly to keep my GPA up because I was not naturally a science student and it was very, very difficult um, the whole way through um, to kind of catch up, you know, as it were. And also it kept my morale up, you know, to study something that came easier to me and um, meaning, you know, speaking, writing freely. Um, I, I had never formally learned Hebrew, so I did that. Um, and then I had, I, I was raised speaking Yiddish. That's my you mama had never, Ah, Yiddish was your, was your mother Yiddish tongue. Yiddish was my mama lesson. Um, and so I studied two years of Hebrew um, at UCLA and then a year, a full year of Yiddish. And um, I took on more observance, you know, so I was gone for 12 years, though, from the industry. I went straight into a doctoral program also at UCLA, also in neuroscience. Um, I studied psychoneuroendocrinology. Um, I specialized in obsessive compulsive disorder in individuals with special needs. And I always knew I wanted to work with humans. I'm, I'm a vegan, so um, there's, not, there, there's not as many labs studying humans as there are studying non-humans. Oh, that's like a major professional limitation if you're not willing to torture Absolutely. animals, right? <laughs> Correct. It's, it's uh, I mean, I don't like torturing humans either. But yes, there are far, far less choices if you want to work in the human population. Um, and I had my first son in graduate school, and then I took my doctoral hood pregnant, very, very pregnant. And oh, wow. um, yeah, and then I actually taught. I taught Hebrew school. I mean, I taught I taught Hebrew during college. I taught sixth grade Hebrew school. So I was always very, you know, kind of Jewishly inclined, even as I was, you know, working in in science. Um, and then, you know, I, I ended up being cast in The Big Bang Theory um, after, you know, my son was born and Right. Um, as a, as a, and your yeah. character was a neuroscientist, right? My character was actually a neurobiologist, a very subtle uh, distinction that I, I think only neuroscientists and neurobiologists care about. Um, but originally I was brought on for a, you know, a guest starring role, possible recurring. And then in the fourth season, I was given a profession, neurobiologist, because I didn't have one at first. And then I did that show for nine years. So my kids went from, you know, like a, a nursing infant and toddler to, you know, bar mitzvah age. And I did that for nine years, and then I had about a year off, and then I've been working since. I have a show called Call Me Cat. We just wrapped our third season. So I'm I'm 47 years old, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. So, you know, that's sort of my life from 14 to now. And can you tell us, you just said that only uh, only neuroscientists and neurobiologists would would understand the, or would catch the difference. Um, but but maybe you can tell me some of those distinctions by by way of explaining a little bit what it is you study when you go to study neuroscience. I mean, yeah. my sense is the brain and how it works, but uh, that's that's fairly simplistic. Well, yeah. So neuroscience is the study of the brain and the nervous system, which kind of broadens out um, the possibilities for for what we cover. You know, um, neuroscience as a practice, you know, is a 19th century kind of um, convention. However. You know, neuroscience is the study of really not just the brain, but all of our perception. So all of your senses, um, anything extrasensory, which I'm sure we'll get into today, um, meaning, you know, belief systems, uh, how we how we interact with the world through our nervous system, which is how we receive information from the world, 
and how it gets sent up to our brain and then how our brain sends information from our brain to our body and into the rest of the world. So neuroscience includes everything from, you know, Parkinson's disease to learning disabilities to, um, you, you know, terrible accidents where there are lesions of the brain or nervous system, uh, movement disorders. You know, we like to think of ourselves as the superior science, which is actually something on the Big Bang Theory that my character and Sheldon's character, you know, uh, Jim Parsons character, Sheldon would debate about. What's the, what is the universal science? Is it physics, which describes literally the creation of the universe, as it were? Um, or is it neuroscience that creates our perception of the universe? And as a neuroscientist, I would argue that. In particular, I trained in neuropsychiatry. So that is is you know the the science of how we experience things and how we um, how we modulate behavior you know everything that involves with going to the psychologist or psychiatrist is neuroscience as well. <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, as I suspected, you are indeed the perfect person to talk to about some of the things that I that I'm that I'm that I'm hoping to to explore today. Um, but before before we even get there, uh, it's very helpful to hear you describe kind of like uh, the basics of the way you think about the system, the brain and the nervous system, mm -hmm. and like the interaction between our kind of sensory perception and then how we process it. I I I was thinking of starting with the kind of um, the 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 Jewish or the ancient Hebrew biblical um, system um, as as it's as it's uh, laid out, and and that is to say that, that the the word that I want to start with is the word lev, um, which mm -hmm. we often translate as heart, but it doesn't really mean heart in in the Bible in the Torah. It means something like consciousness, like mind and heart together. In fact, mm -hmm. I once heard Ram Das the uh, recording. I heard Ram Das talking on a recording. And Ram Dass, you know, is like Richard Alper. He's like a nice Jewish boy. But in the recording, it was sort of sad because I, I heard him say that he grew up and he grew up in a Jewish family and they just offered him nothing. There was just nothing there. It was all meaningless, which, you know, that a lot of people have that kind of experience. I get it. And then he found this other spirituality. And it was just, you know, the mind opening and expansive. And he became this devotee of you know, uh, Hinduism and Eastern spirituality. But th then later in the talk, he said something like, I was a little disappointed that our tradition didn't, you know, satisfy or serve him. Sure. Um, but then later in the talk, he said, you know, in, in ancient Sanskrit, there's this word and it's a word that means both mind and heart. You see, like the West, they don't get that, like mind and heart in the ancient, uh, in the ancient, um, um, imagination was all one system and it was mm -hmm. consciousness and it was this and I and I was like listening and just sort of like like jumping up and down in my seat like no no we have that we have, we that. have that you know like Judaism has that so um so um I think Ram Das you know found a, a fairly substantive <laughs> spiritual, spiritual life in his, uh, yeah he, he's fine he doesn't need me but um but we do have that we have this concept of of a lev which is um which is both a mind and a heart. In fact, in, um, in the Torah, um, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, the Torah speaks of a lev ladat, a, a, a heart which knows. So, so kind of speaking of both the intellectual and the emotional um, in one, and I wonder if, that's, if that tracks with your understanding of how we think and feel. Do they all come from the same system? Because I, I, uh, today I want to talk about some of the feelings that we're supposed to summon in Jewish life and also some of the 
the thoughts and beliefs we're supposed to summon, mm-hmm. is that all kind of part of one organ and system in your in your understanding? Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's hard because my instinct is to to lean into my my Jewish sensibility, which which knows that, you know, even just from the Vehafta itself, um, you do not just love with your heart. You love with your entire strength and your being and, you know, kind of all of your consciousness, as it were. Um, so, you know, speaking sort of, you know, from from a scientific perspective, but also one that that is absolutely informed by by text. You know, brain is not mentioned in the Torah, if 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 I'm correct there. That's Heart correct. Is, you know, hundreds yeah, and hundreds right. and hundreds and hundreds of times. And I, I think one of the important things to to remember really in any conversations about science and the brain or science and faith um, is that the, the consciousness that existed thousands of years ago in in many ways is similar, right? The structure of the brain does not change that quickly to our understanding. Obviously there are changes in the brain and happy to talk about intergenerational trauma anytime you want, but- But we haven't, we haven't evolved that much exactly. since we, the days we have of not Moses. Evolved, we have not evolved significantly in terms of structure of the brain, you know, n- neuronal systems, the way the nervous system is organized. However, what has changed is a relationship with the world and with our kind of conscious experience. and. One of the things that is true, and we see that, you know, throughout the the Torah and throughout, you know, kind of all of our sacred writings, is there was a very different relationship to nature at that time. There was a very different relationship to culture. Um, you know, the, the fact that people existed without a lot of the conventions that we have today means that there was a different consciousness. And when we look at writings from any number of religious faiths at that time, there's absolutely a different way that we're structuring our understanding of the world. And in that sense, a feeling sense is very wise, meaning what you feel is, is incredibly, in many cases, intuitive, or um, it, it, um, it can dictate belief systems, it can create collective consciousness, um, and I'll leave it at that to see where you want to go next. But, you know, my mind goes to obviously a lot of the places that, um, that we have ancient texts and it's really not, I think for you and me to decide, are those texts true? Did those things happen? The fact is these are the, the stories and the framework that form the basis of the Torah, the Jewish people. Um, that is a sort of collective understanding of a narrative. Right. Okay. So, so, okay. So feelings, that is where I want to go next to talk about the role of, of feelings as a, it's interesting to hear you, hear you speak it out that way as a kind of a, well, and I think, sorry, if I can just, I'm going to go ahead and modify what I said, or at least clarify one of the neat things about neuroscience or about science in general is, you know, it's not that I don't believe there are feelings, but there is absolutely a neurochemical explanation for everything that we perceive and everything we feel. So I believe in love, but I also know that love is a very complicated set of neurochemical reactions and interactions and situations that create a a flood of neurochemical stew that creates this thing that we say is love, right? And I think any sort of any person who's been in therapy, anyone who's, you know, uh, lived enough, had enough heartache or beauty in their lives knows that the, the concept of love 
it doesn't just drop in. It it is experience. It's trust. It's a it's a verb. It's not just a thing, right? It's an action. So for me as a scientist, there's a science to all feelings. There's a science to all belief. There's an explanation as to why people believe things the way they do and what happens in your brain and in your heart when you are part of a collective like that in particular. What do you mean by that? When you're part of a collective, it changes what happens in your brain and heart? Yeah, I mean, so the the notion that you know, one person believing is powerful. Causing other people to believe is even more powerful. <laughs> this is why and how we have leadership, you know, to, to different levels in religious structure. And in addition, you know, a lot of religion is um, a, a certain amount of narrative and in many cases folklore. And, you know, there's there are belief systems that are built around that and as with any large <laughs> patriarchal structure, there's going to be an institutionalization surrounding belief that then needs rules in place. It sometimes has arbitrary rules. It has, you know, ways that we all have to behave so that we feel a way when we're together. We feel togetherness. We feel tribalism. You know, all these things, there's a scientific basis for, you know, if you think of us not just as, you know, pleasure seekers, right, which Freud would say, like, pleasure principle is, you know, uh, one of these driving factors. You know, as humans, we, we want to make sense of things, right? We are meaning machines. That's what the brain is for, right? It's to make meaning out of things. And when things don't make sense, we need them to make sense. So when you take any charismatic leader that you can think about in history, especially in ancient times, you have a community that has to share a belief and in that sense, you become, you know, a thinking and feeling organism. But all of that, that is, I'm, I, I guess I should have expected you to say this, but I, I kind of didn't expect you to put it quite that way. All of that, in the end, you feel like, not you feel like, you believe or you think can be boiled down to chemical processes and to like, in other words, on some level, even though I think of you as a very like re religious person, in, on some level you are a kind of thoroughgoing materialist. Like all our, that is to say, there's another way of looking at it, which is that there is, and you were, I feel like you were kind of alluding to this. We sometimes speak of love like, oh sure, you know, we might feel a rise in our blood pressure, but actually the feeling itself is something beyond anything that can be boiled down to chemicals moving around in the brain. And, and I think you're saying, no, on some level, we can, we could identify and see a physical cause for all of our feelings, thoughts, beliefs, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think also, you know, it, it is, there's, there's a romanticism, I think that, that we tend to have, and I, I can be a very romantic person. You know, there are, there are many things that I can't explain that I feel deeply, right? Um, there are, there are many experiences that, that I've had, um, especially in religious realms, which feel otherworldly, you know, they absolutely do. They feel otherworldly. And there is a certain amount of, um, of, of logic and of rationality that I do experience even as a religious person. Um, but I think, you know, what people ask me a lot about, and, you know, I don't want to kind of get trite too early in our conversation, 
Um, you know, I don't feel a conflict, you know, between my my love of science um, and my love of God, you know, or or religious structure. Um, but but yeah, I think that there are I think there are things we can't explain. I, I think that there are things that we cannot measure. I, I'm I'm completely willing to be open to that, and I think that 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 wonder is something I'm comfortable with. I think a lot of people of science are not comfortable with that unknowability, and I am comfortable with that. Um, but I also know that you know something happens when I hear a particular nigun. You know something happens when I can drop into a deep space on Yom Kippur when you're not eating and you're not drinking and you're sitting and you're, you know, deep in contemplation, something's happening. And yeah, there's a physiological explanation for it, but that doesn't preclude an ecstatic experience. And for me, both can exist. Right. Right. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think right now what I think about all that, because I, I do think that I am, I get a little nervous with the whole project of trying to reduce, I shouldn't even say reduce, because you probably wouldn't put it that way. But I feel like there's, there is something reductive about, about talking uh, about our, our feelings and our thoughts, like, mm -hmm. as, as the outcome of chemicals moving around in our Okay, so tell me, tell me what, what makes you, what, what feels uh, icky about that? I guess, I guess it, 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 it seems to, to me to render it arbitrary or, or meaningless. Mm. That is to say that, sure, I'm, I, of course there's a biological basis to, to, to my emotional life, but there's something, but the meaning of my emotional life it seems to come from somewhere else. That 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 the phenomenon of 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 love itself is meaningful because of some, some because it's the meaning is rooted in something that is beyond just what's happening in my body. And if it if it could just be explained by what was happening in my body and what I ate that morning and um <laughs> you know how many drugs I took or whatever, just something that was 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 purely physical, it would it would feel to me less meaningful somehow. Well, I think, and I think that's a really, I think that's an important distinction, you know, and um, and it's it's an important one because I think if you are too much in that rational space, too much in that um, materialist uh, space, as it were, it can feel loveless. And I think for me, and 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 I can't speak to other people's experience. For me, you know, that I feel intoxicated with the knowledge of what happens in the body and brain because of the meaning that it produces. Like for me, they're not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I guess mm -hmm. that's sort of, that would be, you know, my, my hope for people that it, this is not, it's not a binary system. You know, it's not an oh. either or. Okay. All right. So, so, okay, fair enough. So let's try to apply then, let's try to integrate these systems um, and, and apply some of this thinking to the feelings and beliefs and thoughts that course through our tradition and are sometimes, and this, this, this is, is what I'm interested in, in particular, are sometimes even mandated by our system. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you spoke about leaders and cultures and you know, societies in the, in the ancient world, the, 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 the collective that might guide your beliefs mm -hmm. and feelings and thoughts. 
and the Torah is a, a record of, of an attempt to, to guide feelings and, and thoughts in just that right. way. And we see, we have all kinds of commandments. So this is like, like a very, very uh, legalistic religion. There's lots of stuff to do. Um, and most of them are real, like, do uh, real actions. You do them. You go and you do them and you pick up a lulav or you, or you, don't, <laughs> you don't pick up your phone on Shabbat or whatever it is. Um, actions, not actions, but it's a, it's about what you're doing. But there are, there's the whole realm of what we call like chovot alivavot, the, 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 the duties of the heart, right? In the name of a, of a famous work, which are commandments that take place inside of us. And you actually already mentioned one, a classic, the Ve'ahavta, one of our, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's not exactly a prayer. It's more, more like a statement of our, mm-hmm. of our faith. And we, we declare twice a day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then the next line is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Mm-hmm. So there, there it is. We're talking about love, and we're being commanded to love, commanded to feel a certain way about God. And, and so I, I wonder what, what that could mean in the, in, in the context that we've been talking about where Love is the the kind of the product of uh, of of some kind of bi- biological process within. If that if that's the case, how can you be asked to summon that? I mean, it's look, it's a weird idea anyway. How can you be told to love anyone? Sure. But let's try to think about it a little bit from a neuroscientist's perspective. What 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 is going on when we love, and could we? Could we summon that? Can we control that? Do we have any agency over that? Um, it's a really, it's a really fun way um, to think about it. Um, you know, several things come to mind. The first is na'asev Ishma. You know, the the first is that there is a very Jewish notion of doing something first <laughs> and being able to to deeply integrate it later, and that scientifically makes a tremendous amount of sense. And so when you think about being commanded kind of to do anything, uh, what we know about the human brain and about how we are wired is that uh, we do well with practice. We do well with repetition, meaning the brain is geared towards actions that we derive meaning from. Meaning if, if they don't have meaning in the first place, uh, meaning comes from, from doing them in repetition. So what's also fascinating is, you know, in science, we, we tend to, to seek, at least I tend to seek as a scientist, ways that humans are not special, because in many cases, we're not. You know, in, in most cases, we behave like primates. In, in many cases, we behave like mammals, you know, meaning even like take it, I don't like to say down a notch, because there's a, you know, there is a hierarchy, though, that people think about. But you know, there's a reason that that we compare ourselves to e- even research done on cats, research done on rats. You know, we we generally uh, have um, the, the wiring of of many uh, of our relatives. However, this is a case where when we think about intention, when we think about the kind of structure of being commanded to love, um, this is a, a much kind of higher level, you know, functioning that we're talking about. So. To kind like, of circle do, back. do cats love? Like right. Do, well, do rats well, love? Well, so, right. So with, with cats and rats, um, what, what we look to is 
um, you know, what are signs of comfort that animals give when they feel safe? You know, that's a form of love. However, apply it to humans and you'll, you'll hear it as well, right? How do I behave when I feel safe? I seek closeness, right? I feel safe eating around someone. I feel safe in the dark with someone. When we think about this notion of, you know, why, why would a people decide to put in writing, you have to love and you have to love this way. And chances are this is an indication as to what kind of community we're looking to form. Trying to form a community, you know, when, when this came down from God, right? What people were receiving was there is a, an allegiance and a loyalty that we are to look to in this God figure that typically we reserve for our parents. And that is not just because the patriarchy sucks, you know, because that's actually not what I'm arguing, but religious community, religious belief, it is based around allegiance to something that cares for you. Because the fact is, without that, why are we here? What are we doing? And this is something that is special for humans to get to contemplate. Well, yeah, that you feel allegiance to, and I think part of what you're saying is, and you feel allegiance to it, and and you you experience it as caring for you uh, because that's that makes you feel safe and Great. you are Correct. like and the cat the you are experiencing a, sen a, a sense of safety and you and you your life force like all you there know you living beings is seeking safety and so yes. this commandment is trying to harness that that desire to feel safe yeah. and put it in the language of love yeah, and, and the fact is, what, what do you do for people that protect you, right? You protect them. You stand mm. by them. You give your resources to them. You make children to serve them, right? Mm. Think about the family structure which has existed for most of human history. It was a community. It was a, you know, it was a community and then an extended chavara, right? So God is actually, you know, as... Uh, you know, uh, Rav Chaim would say, like, if God didn't exist, we would just create God, <laughs> because this is this is this is what we do. You know, we 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 create these kind of circles of identity as humans. It's it's it is it's to make sense of what we're doing here. But you know, it's like we don't usually think of the commandment that way. Like we think you know? of the commandment as. I mean, you do, I guess. <laughs> but we think of the commandment like when we're commanded to love God. We think of that, I, I think we tend to think of that as something we're doing because God deserves our love mm. and, and it's because of, you know, and we want to show God something. Um, we want to testify to our relationship with God. We want to honor God. We, we actually, like, it, that there's no other, there's no, there's no other uh, agenda that we have, that the idea mm -hmm. is that God is just, is just lovable and worthy of our mm -hmm. love. And so it's it's quite a reframe to imagine that that, that commandment serves a, a function for us. Like we're, we're better off if we're a loving people that has a collective sense of that which we love, which, which provides for our safety and well-being. Well, and in any, in any healthy relationship, right? It benefits both. And, you know, my understanding, and, you know, this is from the, you know, the learning that I've, you know, 
chosen to do because I needed it to make sense was that, you know, all of my relationships with humans are based on my relationship with God, right? everything that I seek to, you know, be as a person, right? It's, it's what we, it is the qualities that we seek to be as humans. We attribute them to God, right? So that we can then echo them. And the relationship that our tradition is establishing really is, it's a model, you know, like God didn't need us to exist in the universe. The universe was in theory, completely fine right? The, the universe was fine. So why, 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 why create, why do all these things? And I can't, I can't assume to know what God's intentions were, except what we can lean into is that that relationship that was created when humans were created, right? With the capital C, that then is a model for all of the other interactions that I have in the world is that mm. initial, like my birth, your birth, everybody's mm. birth, that's the beginning of a conversation. Yeah, but it, it sounds like that uh, that's very beautifully put, but it sounds like you're also saying something in the kind of reverse direction, which is that all of our, all of our, our, our understandings of God and the way we relate to God, all of that is also drawn from our, our experience of each other and of ourselves as as in as as human beings and the way we relate to each other and we we extract and we sort of project you might even say project mm -hmm. our own yeah. our own feelings and 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 needs onto this this higher be we imagine this yeah. higher being that kind of that is the the overarching structure for it all but but there's a way in which our very notions of god are really based on our most basic fundamental human needs. I think Correct. that's and what that's you're suggesting. Correct. Yeah. To, and to me, those, those work nicely together. I, again, like very, very little here is going to work for me in a binary system. Um, but you just described the world mass, you know, like we, we're all projected. Like we, mm. we're like our relationship with God, God's creation of us is then a projection of all the the interactions that we then have. So what happens is as part of the human system, because we're humans, because we're going to start making meaning from things, we're going to start structures. We're going to start commandments. We're going to start saying, here's the way to do it. And there is then going to be a hierarchy of people, right? There's going to be priests. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be a whole structure by which we foster belief and we build meaning around it, right? To the point, I mean, you know, Judaism, the, the most neurotic belief system, there's a prayer for pretty much everything all day. You know, like that's the, that is a, that's a constant consciousness that we have with our career at its best, you know, at its worst, it's all the things that people say about us and make TV shows about, but at its best, it's a, it is a constant conversation on a very deeply spiritual level which also was likely not the experience for all Jews, but, you know, this is sort of the, the text that we work from. <laughs> you know, we started talking about being commanded to feel, and, and I think I, I, I understand the, the way you're, the way you framed it, and, and it's new for me, but it's quite helpful to think of those feelings as, inevitable, natural, mm -hmm. 
And in the case of, of love, for example, as related to, to other basic concerns that we have, concerns mm -hmm. for safety and concerns for well-being, and um, we pledge our allegiance to things that will provide that. But when it comes to beliefs, ideas that we are being um, given and asked to commit ourselves to, like, oh, well, how about one that, we, that, we, that we've also just mentioned? Because the Shema has that, um, that commandment to love, but just before that is the great declaration here, the Lord, the Lord is one, God is one. Mm -hmm. And our tradition learns from that. Also a commandment, a commandment to believe that God, there is one God. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems to me to be, well, first of all, it's, it's again, a, a funny thing to command. How can you be commanded to, to believe in, to believe that something is true? You either believe it or you don't. So I'm curious how you would think about that. But also, it seems there that what we're being asked to do is to say something about something outside of us, something that is yep. true in a way that has nothing to do with who we are and how, how and what we want, but, but something that is higher and true outside of us. So I wonder if there's a material, uh, a, 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 a neurological explanation for those sorts of commandments as well, commandments to believe. The, the reason that beliefs are placed this way upon humans is, as I said, we want to make sense of things. We want to make meaning of things. And we, you know, one of the most interesting fields of study, I think, is the, the science of belief. And where is God in the brain? You know, it's, it's kind of what mm -hmm. I'm often asked yeah. in, in Q&A sessions. Where is God in the brain? And you know, there are all these really, really fascinating studies that are done um, often when people are in dire situations in hospitals or about to undergo surgery. And what we know is that the, the prefrontal cortex, you know, that really, really front part, that part of the brain in particular seeks to understand sort of where we go, how we relate, and, and, and how we specifically relate to deep mystical and spiritual concepts. So when we have a tradition that is really exactly like you said, taking something outside of yourself and asking you to essentially place belief in it with no personal resonance necessarily, what we're also doing is we're trying to, to, to train ourselves. You know, we're, we're training people to, to pass on a way of thinking. And while that might not be something that we can say that's going to change over one generation, we know that epigenetics exists. We know that belief systems rub off on people around us. We know that when people believe they're being prayed for, they tend to recover nicely. Not because, quote, prayer works, but because what it means to say prayer works is to say you have a consciousness that how other people feel, how other people think, and what other people believe about you matters, right? So to me, that's what the first commandment is. Like literally the first commandment. <laughs> to, be to believe, yeah, to, to believe in God, yeah. To believe that there is something that is larger. And I've met many happy atheists, I have. I've met many good atheists. What I will say is that for, for the most part of human history, in addition to all the wars that we bring in the name of religion, <laughs> pathways to a lifestyle surrounded by 
gemilut chasadim and and mitzvot and and acts of organized structure around interpersonal goodness do tend to come from belief structures that make you say there's something bigger than you that you don't even understand, but I promise we're in this together. But is there something bigger than us? I mean, I think that's that's <laughs> one of the questions I'm asking here because I, I, I'm both fascinated by what you're saying and also a little threatened by it in the sense that, like I feel defensive in the sense that, I, I mean, I, I, you just did a, a, a very eloquent job of once again explaining how something like belief in God would benefit us as, right. as people, as a society, as a species, as a collective, as right. a particular collective that develops a particular belief, which will right. grant, once again, grant them a sense of safety and well-being and an ability to sort of proceed through the world in the most beneficial way, again, for us. And I guess I am, I, I'm, I, I am a, I, I feel instinctively a little anxious about that because I, I think I want, like on some level that feels to me like, oh, there's no real, there's not really a God. That's like a cool uh, idea okay, that so we have on. to help us right. feel good about, about, oh, if you believed in one God, then you would feel at home in the world and then you would feel safe in you. Like it's an evolutionary impulse and we can, we can diagnose it and we can get it and it's very nice and it might be a good feeling, but it's not, I, 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 I don't know if I want to use the word true, but I, when I feel the presence of God, I feel like I am encountering something and not just, but, but I don't know if I should say just, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's a powerful thing that I am suddenly feeling overwhelmed by a sense of safety and comfort. And like, mm -hmm. maybe it's all, it's all it, like, it can all be, um, uh, explained that way, but there's something about it that feels to me, as right. I said before, a little reductive. Like I want there to be an right. actual thing out there. Okay, so here we go. So this is this is my favorite part of this conversation because <laughs> what what you're actually looking for is a completely rational scientific explanation for something that lives beyond the bounds of rationality. Mm -hmm. And this is where I, I think modernity, and by modernity, I mean, at least from Maimonides on, right? This is where, where we see the, the true conflict. This is like where the, you know, where we put the pedal to the metal of what is belief, because it, it's like a, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of your religious faith. Once you try and name it, once you try and observe it, once you try and quantify it, it disappears. Hmm. Because that this is the, the, your brain was wired, your chemistry is such that you can hold that kind of ecstatic, supernatural beauty. Yeah, I mean... And, and who did, I guess, who did the wiring, you know, is one, is, 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 is one of the questions that I'm asking. Uh, as you said, we're getting right to the heart of it now. And, 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 and by that, I mean, to the, we're getting to the, to, to the question of w whether there is a, indeed a conflict between the scientific and the religious mm -hmm. and between the scientific account of the world and the religious account of the world. And you are doing um, a, 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 a wonderful job of giving us a 
kind of scientific account of our religious lives. And I am, uh, re I am reacting to that because it, like I, I hear in that a, 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 a sense that, that actually science is the, 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 the explanation for religion and that actually everything has a scientific explanation. And I think I want to say, as, 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 you, as, as you, you're naming very well, that there, there are things which are unquantifiable. Uh, uh, there mm -hmm. are things that are beyond the scientific. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm wondering if you think that as well. I mean, our, you know, uh, we talked about the, a little bit before the, um, bef before today, about the various attempts to, to reconcile, because, you know, our, our, our rabbis have been doing this, you know, for ages, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, at least since the, the Middle Ages, and, 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 mm -hmm. and you can see it in the Talmud as well, trying to figure out, well, how, you know, we actually, we're, we are people who have always um, affirmed uh, science and medicine and, and um, empiricism and being able to figure things out about the world, um, a tradition that starts by celebrating the wonder of the natural world. And so, um, you know, rabbis have grappled with this question um, throughout our history, and there are various approaches. And some of them are to say, uh, the Gersonides, the Rabag is famous for this approach, to say that actually, I think he's, he's in, in the camp that I'm hearing from you, which is that ultimately everything has an explanation, and there's no real difference between the spiritual and the material. It's all one system. And if you understood the material account of our of spiritual phenomenon, then they would be as scientific as everything else. And then there are other approaches. Um, I, I think of the Maharal as, a, as one, of my, one of my favorite Jewish philosophers who suggests, no, these are entirely separate realms. There's the spiritual realm and then there's the material realm. And the science is here to give an account of the material physical world, but there's another reality. It's sort of like a platonic approach. There's a mm -hmm. spiritual reality and that's what we're talking about. And... Yeah, I wonder if if you like do, do you see them as separate or 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 it, it sounds to me like much more integrated. Yeah, I think for for me it's much more integrated. Um I don't know, it's like believing in God feels like it doesn't even scratch the surface, you know? Um meaning if you were to take, I mean, can we take an example? Let's take the burning bush. So what happens there? Moses comes upon a bush, it's all in flames, it starts talking to him. What's going on in his brain there? What's, what's happening? <laughs> okay, so, but I, okay, yes and. So Moses comes upon this bush, it's all burning, it's not consumed, and, uh, and, and a voice comes to him, right? And I'm starting to cry because I'm a human being who's having an experience of this story, both because it has historical significance in my life, meaning I was taught it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a visual set of images that come to me, the images, and I'm literally walking you through what I understand is happening, right, in my brain. Yeah, um, yeah. I have the images that I conjured as a child of like, what? How could something burn, but it's not consumed? And then I think of, forgive me, a cultural reference, you know, the, the, the DreamWorks movie, right? where I really like the, the imagery there. Like that's exactly totally, what I think. Totally. My, it's like my, when I think of Moses, yeah. it's like Charlton totally. Heston, you know what I mean? Exactly, like, right. For sure. So we all have our, we all have our reference point, but for me, like that's it. And you know, one of the, one of the places that I'm all, every single time brought to tears is Moses says, he says, I am here. Right. Like, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. here I am is sort of the, the translation, right? And the next thing that happens, and to me, these are all, these are all combined, right? Uh, take off the shoes from your feet, depending on your, uh, you know, translation, the, the place on which you stand is holy ground. And I get a set of chills that start like on the back of my neck and go all the way down my spine, right? So like I'm having a very specific visceral reaction to the telling of this. But let's think about what's actually happening. For me, you have a place in time that I believe the Torah existed in when people walked around <laughs> and they wore sandals and they tended to sheep. Like it was a different time they were living in a tremendously close state of nature. You know, when you think of indigenous people, you know, who are connected to the land, this was a time in history when people were far more connected to the land, which means they can perceive things differently. They can understand things differently. You know, if you've ever seen a human who is a tracker, someone who actually knows how to track animals, you'd think like, where did the, what book did they read? No, that's not, that's not how it works. So we're talking about, I'm thinking of, there's a, this is a story in a book, right? Which I do believe is holy, sacred to whatever definition you want. And you have a person who is having an experience of some sort that may also be a mystical or supernatural experience. He could have been fasting. There could have been meditation surrounding it. Many people say like, oh, they were smoking weed. Like, I don't know. It, to mm -hmm. me, it's not really important. He's having an experience, right? Where I, 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 That's always a funny one. I hear that when people are like, Mo Moses probably took psychedelic mushrooms. And it's like, it's, so, it's such a weird thing that you're like, you believe that Moses had all these <laughs> visions, but the, like that you're taking for granted. Like, why don't you say it's all BS? But you, no, no, exactly. it all happened, but it... Uh, only is possible that it happened through psychedelics, but right, yeah. and he okay. knew the exact right dosage to take. Great. Yeah. Um, so, so what? So for me, what's important from this? What the basis of my religious identity and belief is, is that I'm learning that there are perceptions of things that have a definition that I don't always understand, and sure, maybe it was a kind of tree that is not very flammable, right? Like to what level do I need to know what tree that is? For me personally, that's not what's important. What's important is that the experience he had was that this thing is on fire and it's not being consumed, which mm -hmm. brings up abundance. It brings up um, awe. It brings up terror. It brings up all of this, th this captivation with an experience, right? And to hear a voice, and to me, it's not important if it was an acoustic airwave. It's really not. I know exactly what sound is like. I know that God doesn't have lips and I'm okay with that, right? There was an experience that humans have that this man had that indicated to him that he was in the presence of something that he needed to stand up and say, I am here for this. I am witnessing something that I cannot even, I can't even go get my wife and tell her, right? I have to, I gotta wait because whatever's happening, there's an urgency and there's a preciousness and there is a holiness to that experience. To me, as a religious person and as a person of science, that's all I need to know. And the most important thing is what happens when he leaves that place 
and brings it back to the people. And where it takes him is to a place of liberation. That's, to me, I'm totally comfortable. I got no conflict. I, I hear you. Look, I am... I'm with you all, all the way, all the, all the way there on, on that stuff. And I, but I, I still feel like, but it's not all I need to know. I mean, right. don't get me wrong. I don't want to be misunderstood here. It's not important to me that there was a literal bush and it was sure. on fire and you either believe the bush was on fire or you don't. And in fact, I mean, part of what I'm, I'm, I'm wondering here is what's going on in, in Moses's brain. Or what's going on in the brains of the people who stood Great. at Mount Sinai? Like, I, I, right. I think a lot of the prophecy, when we talk about prophecy in our tradition, yep. a lot of it is spoken in the language of dreams and night visions and yep. things that are very, like, we could we could understand them um, scientifically and biologically, and we know that we yep. all dream, and so what's happening inside the brain and your thoughts. But I think, so it's not as important to me that there was a an actual bush and what Moses thought he saw he thought he saw and and I'm with you on all of the 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 transformative meaning that came out of it and the way that it changed his life and then his whole sure. people's l lives but I I think the thing that I'm still yearning for or or um searching for and maybe hoping for even <laughs> is a sense that Moses understood something true not just about the way we ought to live, but that Mo Moses actually accessed something, that there's something out there, in other words, mm -hmm. that there is another, like a, 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 a being is, is, is already a word that feels too specific, but some sure. other entity yeah. that Moses makes contact with. And it isn't just his own sense of well-being or will be good for his people or just like the stimulation of his nerves, but that he got something yes. and it's important for me to read this story because I'm trying to get something true about existence itself. And, and that's also what Sinai represents to me is like a whole people coming into awareness and contact with something mm -hmm. up there, out there that is not us. And that feels important to me. And mm -hmm. maybe you're saying it's not that the, because after all, that's an impossible question to answer. I mean, I'm asking well, a question think, no right. scientist think, or philosopher well, could answer. Right. So, and, and that's and that sort of is sort of the that is the question that I would pose to you, because, and I think this is the, the this is the, the struggle for for especially modern people of faith, um, and people who, uh, you know, according to the the principles of. Um, you know, one of the purposes of modern orthodoxy, right, was to combine modern thought with, you know, with a, a traditional mindset. You know, Yeshiva University is like literally structured around that in theory. Torah umada, which could be translated right. as Torah and science. That's right. So yeah. um, I think that um, the, and I don't mean to psychoanalyze your desire for this. Oh, go, go for it. I need, I no, need some, thera I, some no, free therapy. No, but I think. I think that there's something that is so divine about this level of inquiry that you have, meaning the holiest work that we do, right? Intellect is the glory of God, right? Maimonides. The holiest work that we get to do is to find a way to come to terms with this element of, in many cases, ambiguity and uncertainty. 
And for many people, that is the that is what tips the scale towards I'm out of here, right? For many yeah. people, that is. And yeah. the question then, it, it does, it becomes a more practical one. What do I gain, me? What do I gain when I'm willing to take that leap and say, I don't know that I can know, and I know what feels true to me, and I know what feels deep to me, even when I know like, oh, it's the chemicals, it's the this, that music, it's hitting that place, it's my auditory cortex, it's connecting to the prefrontal, you know, there's still, to me, the fact that we can have a conversation like we're having now, we're both in our bodies, we're in two different places, speaking through computers and space, like that level of existence to me is the ecstatic acknowledgement that I didn't create it and I couldn't, that for me is the, that's the overarching principle to why I wake up every morning and why I go to sleep yeah. every night. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, look, I think we share that. I think I shared that with you. And I mean, you're like, I mean, we, we pray together, we practice right. together, we, we share, a, we share a tradition and in many ways you're speaking my language and Yet the the this angsty part of me that's been like yeah. kind of um, kind of wriggling and writhing through through this conversation is I think I'm not so much pushing back against science. Mm -hmm. I think I'm pushing back against uh, like Freud. You mentioned Freud earlier yeah. against this idea that I can't trust my own perceptions. Mm. That that's what I'm worried about. Like that in my burning bush moments mm -hmm. where I feel suddenly I'm aware of a great oneness and a great mm -hmm. harmony. And I feel like, oh my gosh, there, I can sense a presence. Like there is something there, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and I might say there is like, there are also things happening in my body and there's, there's a material account of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I might also say, uh, but there are there's something I'm becoming aware of that I can't put into um, the language of numbers and and mm -hmm. and science. But it's but I but I want to trust myself. I want to feel like. But there I am actually intuitively or or extrasensorily or mystically mm -hmm. I am actually knowing something. And this feeling that I have of a presence, I can trust that and not just as I said like take the kind of Freudian approach of like, oh, you think so, and it's safer for you to think so, and isn't that cute that you think so, but actually, right. this is all just because you are scrambling to like, survive, feel safe, eat, and reproduce in the world, right. and this is the, 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 the grand superstructure that you've created okay. to, you know, to, okay. to accommodate your complicated brain when you, when you try to do those things. I wanna feel like, no, right. there's a form of knowledge that is, that I can trust that is spiritual knowledge, and it right. like I'm asked by my tradition to know God in some way, and I can't know what God is, but I can know that there is something, and right. I want to okay. feel like I can trust okay. that knowledge. So there's there, <laughs> there's two solutions <laughs> to this line of thinking. There are certain there are certain ways of believing that eliminate the sense of ambiguity that our tradition glorifies, meaning uh, especially the the tension you know, that, that Soloveitchik spoke of, the, the, the tension and the, the dialectic, you know, the, the sort of approach of 
you know, this last hundred years or so, um, you know, sort of em embracing that tension in a more conscious way. So there, there are, there are forms of our religion and there are other kinds of religion and practice that essentially don't allow for that ambiguity. And what that means is it's much easier to believe when you are told that you have something that other people do not have access to. In many cases, that is this worldly. In many cases, it's otherworldly. But part of this struggle, which I believe is the glory of God, this intellectual you know, debate, we are wired for this. We're wired to be challenged. We're wired this way. And you know, I have a lot of very, very religious family. And I remember when I was younger, when I would speak to my cousins, I wouldn't understand why they didn't want to debate this way. <laughs> and it's because culturally speaking from their denomination and the way you know they were educated it, it wasn't encouraged the same way it's not that they weren't smart it's not that they didn't have the capacity but once you leave open the possibility to wonder there is more doubt that is true it is a challenge you know it's a special challenge so that's sort of one thing the other thing and this is kind of going well, that one thing being that this and I would agree with you. And so I just yes. want to like, uh, I want to uh -huh. underscore this, that this, this tradition that we, that our people have been developing for, for thousands of years is even is like sort of defined by its commitment to ambiguity to a certain extent. And, and I would, I would, in other words, the debate, the struggle, the questioning, the things yeah. that Jews are famous for, but also at the heart of it, a sense that there is something unknowable that the great Correct. force is beyond all comprehension. And so you have to, if that's true, you can believe yeah. in it all you want, but you have to live with a certain amount of like, well, I, we don't, Correct. we don't know that everything is, 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 is complicated. And, and there well, are, so, and, there, and there are the, seeming contradictions that we cannot resolve. Well, and, and then the question is, what do you do in the name of that? Do you kill in the name of it? Do you love in the name of it? How do you worship in the name of that? Mm. Who do you exclude? Mm. Who do you include? To me, that sort of becomes then a, a lot of that. The, the second part is the scientific response, which is we, we do know what, what happens when people have certain transcendental experiences. And there are many legitimate studies that involve the use of psychedelics. Um, those are, those are a, a class of drugs that have been used, you know, for all of human history. Let's just go ahead and I'm going to paint with a really broad brush that there sure. have always been traditions, um, and, and I'm, I'm leaving Judaism out of this because I don't want to get into like, Moses was tripping balls. Like, I don't think that's an interesting <laughs> conversation. But Adam and Eve you know, we, ate right, mushrooms yeah. from the tree, yeah. Like, not really my, I'm sure that there's fantastic <laughs> books about that. But what we know from, from indigenous cultures, right? What we know from, from, um, from cultures and, and also from a, a more recent, and this is very current, you know, a, a more recent in the last, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years that it's been kind of part of more of the scientific mainstream conversation. Um, you know, psychotherapy assisted psilocybin, people are, you know, also using ketamine for these kind. you know, there are therapeutic uses of drugs that we actually have a, a fair amount of information about. Um, the criminalization of these drugs by the US government is a fascinating topic um, that we can also leave for another time. But it is true that people who are having transcendental experiences are very hard to put into the military and send to war, which is, you know, a lot of when this conversation occurred, you know, was surrounding mm -hmm. a, a very hostile time in our country's history. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That aside, we do know that when people, for example, experience, even on LSD, when they experience synesthesia, which is described in theory, uh, when we stood at the uh, the base of Mount Sinai, right? Uh, we, right, we saw we, the sounds. We, we saw the sounds. Sensory experiences. Right. So that is that is called synesthesia, and um, some people do experience synesthesia not related to uh, drugs or um, chemicals. But what what we know happens is that there are. I'm going to really you know be really kind of. I'm going to oversimplify this. There are ways that the sensory systems can cross. Um, the, that can be facilitated chemically. And there's also another experience people describe often on mushrooms of like, everything seems so clear, right? It just seems so clear. And what that is, is there are actually, you know, there are, there are processes in the brain that we know that when muted because of a chemical experience create what feels like clarity because there's less interference. There's literally less noise. If you've ever spoken to someone with severe ADHD who is given a medication that allows them to focus, what they will describe is, it's as if I could focus on what I wanted to and not what I didn't. So that's a chemical process. It's not mystical. It's not spiritual. So what we know from people who have these kinds of transcendental experiences, and we've mapped brains while people do this, there's legitimate science from every well-known medical university you've heard of that has really been able to pinpoint what in the brain is emphasized, what is overemphasized, what is strengthened when you have the ability to say, I've experienced something outside of this realm. So I'm going to go ahead and grant you, Rabbi Kasher, that there may be a genetic predisposition among certain people. If you take a community that had bottlenecking that led to inbreeding, if if you're going to shrink down a genetic population's ability to experience things, which happens in, for example, the Eastern European Ashkenazi community in particular, you may literally be looking at a propensity for belief, a propensity Mm. not just to create God, but to have Mm. access to the things that we call God. And that's the feeling that you're talking about. That Mm. that's it. And and it, it feels different. Some people experience it during sex with the person that they believe God intended them to have sex with some, you know, when, when I gave birth in my home, you know, unassisted till pushing right on my living room floor, that was an otherworldly ecstatic experience that felt like it defied all logic and reason because it was the power of my brain and my body combining for something that felt like, thank God. God, right? I wanted to be in touch. I felt like I was drawing energy from something that I could not define, right? That, to me, like that's all the divinity that I need. And I am grateful I have that brain that wants that and that craves it because it's taken me my whole adult life to then pursue it and live in it in a way that doesn't feel problematic, you know, to raise children in a tradition where I say a lot of this is cultural, a lot of this is historical, and also look what you can experience. That's divine. In that moment, when you feel a sense of 
kind of overwhelming, beyond all logic um, kind of con contact. That's that is all you need. I mean, what wh why? Why, and also, why you, you experience it in, I experience it in my darkest moments as well. I'd like to add mm. that. I do not only have a relationship with a God that gives me gumballs and gives me the right color when I put my coin in. Mm. You know, the, the depths of despair is also a place where that consciousness exists. So this is not about how to be a happy religious person, you know, meaning mm. this understanding of belief. It means that there's something that can be tapped into even in despair. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I've, I felt that as, as well. Right. And I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I think, there, you know, phenomenologically, I think we, we, sh we share a spiritual life. Like that's, that's mm -hmm. clear. But I think that um, we, we people of faith are sometimes worried that science takes on the same kind of fundamentalist mm. um, orientation and says that, you know, all of all of life and all of them, even the meaning of your life and all of the experiences you've ever had, we they may seem to you beyond all logic and reason, but they're not. And we <laughs> can account for everything and the material world is everything and the and the and the 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 rational mind will eventually understand everything there's there's a kind of this system is the only system mm -hmm. just in the same way that fundamentalist religious people say this is this system is the only right. system i you know to circle back to the phrase that we started with the the heart that knows and i i said lev is kind of mind and heart and consciousness mm -hmm. but in this in this in this sense i, I i'd like to keep the translation as as heart and to distinguish between intellectual, um, rational, cognitive knowledge and some other kind of knowledge, some, some kind of heart knowledge, some kind mm -hmm. of intuitive knowledge, some kind of mystical knowledge that is, is, is just saying something uh, fairly simple, which is that no one system can account for, for all, all of truth. And that, that there is, there are, there are truths, you know, there's more in heaven and earth than dreamt of in your, yeah. in your philosophy, um, Prospero, and, or in your science, or in your religion, or in any one system. The, the whole idea of an infinite God is that there is so much more than any of us will ever be able, any of us, you know, limited beings will ever be able to comprehend. And if, if nothing else, that's what I want to hold on to as a, as a person of faith, is the idea of the idea of uncertainty, the idea of of standing kind of hum humbly before the infinite, and and so yes to science and knowledge of the brain and the account of of uh, that 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 provides the better understanding of the evolution of our people, but also yes and like that there has to be I I still feel like there has to be more there has to be love can be boiled down to certain processes within the body and yet it seems like something more is going it's just like it's and i want as i said i want to believe that it isn't just my i'd like to feel that way or my my evolutionary history has me feeling that way but that i actually like there is something that i'm tapping into that i can trust so my i i agree with you and my response to that is for me as a scientist i feel so enthralled with every rational explanation 
for everything, that for me, that feels sacred. That feels mm. divine to me. So even the understanding of the chemistry of attraction, attachment, for me, knowing that there is a structure around it, that we are literally communicating with words, that we exist on the planet, like that's always where it takes me. And that's why when people say like, oh, the human eye is so complicated, it had to be designed by God. No, that's not even how it works. The human eye exists because of all of the processes that exist on this planet that we then get to try and understand, and that is divine. Yeah, amen to that, amen to that. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and Vera Blossom. Our theme song is Baruch HaMakom by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ikar.org and donate or Venmo us at ikarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next time.